0: beautiful playing, awesome singing today as well. Um, thank you, Praise Team, for uh, singing an extra one for us today. Um, man, that's a powerful song, uh, as all of that we sang today are, are powerful and awesome, but uh, that one particularly will lead us into a very appropriate conversation, I think, to kick off 2021 with. So right off about the uh, we're going to turn to a single verse that I think is the perfect verse to make our verse Uh, for 2021. Now you may have a a passage of scripture you've already committed your heart to and one that you think is really going to be one that uh, you uh, comfort yourself with or challenge yourself with. I think for us as a church, and I think it would be appropriate for us as a nation, uh, I think that uh, this particular verse could be um, really helpful for us uh, in this new year. Now, not to dismiss the other 31,000 verses in the Bible, I think there's 31,100 and two, not to dismiss all the others, but I think this one verse is what God wants us to wrap our hearts and minds around for this new year. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and find your place in Genesis 50. Uh, we're going to look at a verse that's going to sound very similar to what we just sang and what we just sang about. I, and I mean, again, talk about a powerful song. What an incredible statement that we just lifted up a few times uh, where the song says, You took what the enemy meant for evil, you being God, You took what the enemy meant for evil and you worked it, uh, you repurposed it, you redeemed it for something good. I mean, you know, if that can't get an amen, I don't know what can or what should. uh, That God takes what is meant for evil, he can work something out of it. He can take like the potter with the clay, he can make something out of a mess. And that's awesome to know, And, and, and right off the bat, if you don't know that about that about God. You, you can take that to the bank about Him. Um, but you know what that is saying, and, and really I think the best way to kind of capture what that, is, what that message is and what that's trying to convey to us about God uh, that, that line there is telling us that God is a redeeming Savior, that God can salvage something, that God can save somebody or someone or you and I. He can redeem as in it has a value. He knows the value is there. It might just take a little bit to get to it. God is a redeeming Savior. And and we know that from the Bible. We know that from all across the pages of Scripture. We know that from history. You know that from your own personal life. And if you don't, I hope that you can figure that out. But while that's a true statement, the verse that inspires that statement is actually worded a bit differently, and, and sometimes uh, a single word can change, uh, can, can, can change a lot, and is a big deal. So that statement uh, that we just sang really merges a few verses together, Romans eight twenty eight and a few others. Uh, nonetheless, it's true about how our God can redeem anything, can save us from anything, but, but if your Bibles are open, we're going to look at the verse that inspires that song and inspired those words, which is actually, it's even better, and it speaks even more inspiration, I think, even more power into our lives, if you can believe it. Uh, we'll unpack the context for this verse in a few minutes, but I want you to listen to this word that in and of itself packs a, such, a, such a monumental message from heaven to earth, from God to us. Genesis 50, verse number 20. Joseph is talking to his brothers who had in the past been an enemy to him. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it not just worked it out or turned it out or repurposed it, but God meant that same thing for good in order to to bring about as it is this day to save many people alive for the salvation of what we'll find out of a whole nation, maybe even the whole world. Now, this verse is much more than some of its parts. This verse is one of those megaphone verses from God to all of, the, of his enemies, from God to all of us. This verse really puts into perspective how big God is and how involved he is in creation, how much, uh, how much more often heaven intersects with earth than we could ever know and we ever realize. Whereas the line that we sang depicts God redeeming something that happened apart from his will maybe, this verse actually gives us an even more powerful I think, more comforting, more assuring message, and a more uh, assuring image of God. We get a glimpse of a truly and total sovereign Lord. He is a redeeming Savior, don't get me wrong, but this verse paints the picture of a sovereign creator, a sovereign Lord over his creation, a God who is in absolute control. Not just a God who responds, but a God who is involved. Not just a God who picks up the pieces, but a God who lays every block into place. Even the places and positions that we might call into question. There are two words in this verse that really set it apart and bring attention to God's sovereignty. And your, your translation may be different than mine. I'm reading from the New King James, but your translation has these words in it. They might be worded a little bit differently. But two, two words that I want to bring attention to. In the Hebrew, they are single words. In English, there are a couple words. Mint it is the first one. Where it says that God meant it, as in the thing that happened to him, the thing, the sequence of events, and really the thing that kick started it, but all the things that happened after that. God meant it, he says, for good. That word meant in the Hebrew means thoroughly considered. As in it wasn't just something that kind of just accidentally happened and God decided to make something good out of it. It's that when it happened, God had considered it, had calculated it skillfully, and had planned it thoughtfully. As in, again, God meant it to happen. It didn't accidentally happen and he tried to come back at the end and make something good out of it. He meant it to happen from the very beginning. In order to or to bring about something very specific, the Hebrew there, to or in order to, on purpose, for a purpose. So to make sure we understand what this verse is saying, I want to stretch this out a little bit for us. In the same event that the enemy meant for evil, God, sovereignly working through him, that's the enemy, meant it for a very specific good purpose. Now that's a little different then God saw something that happened and tried to make something good out of it, isn't it? This is suggesting, and you may not believe this, you may not be comfortable with this, but this is suggesting that God was working in the same instance that the devil was working or the enemies were working. God was actually sovereignly pulling the strings for an even greater, very good purpose. Now, here's the thing. A lot of people read this verse and hear that explanation and they aren't comfortable with that interpretation which really it's not an interpretation it's literally what it says but I understand there is a temptation to read this verse and add training wheels to it and that's kind of how I like to call it uh, like to portray it we like to add training wheels to some verses because we kind of aren't really comfortable with what they're saying sometimes we try to tone down some things sometimes As in we read this and we think, you know what, those words are just hyperboles. God wouldn't ever mean something that may appear morally ambiguous or outright bad. God wouldn't call something that may not be immediately noticeable or felt in a positive way. That's just not God. There's just no way. That's not in His character. And again, I understand if we get a little uncomfortable with something that happened and we don't know if we really want to sign God off on that, but hey, we think God would never do that. And we make it a character issue to further explain the fear that is in us when we're trying to wrap our mind around this. God wouldn't do that. God doesn't or would never leverage pain, problems, or trouble. Oh, he might redeem it, and he might overcome it. He might allow it to happen in some vague fashion, but but, but he would never cause it, would he? I mean, of course not. That's just not who God is, or it's not the God that I know. I understand the notion we're afraid of portraying God in a less than positive light. We're afraid of the implications of this sort of sovereignty. Not that they do damage to God at all, but because of what we may face, if this is really how it goes. So we clean up his image, we put our own spin on it and on him, and how nice of us, God must be so thankful that we're running PR for him. But what if we just take this verse for what it literally says? And you may say, well, it's not universal. I don't know if I can take it for every situation, but maybe it's not true. But I think it is, and I'm gonna, I am going I believe that's what the Scripture is saying. God meant something that appeared bad and felt bad. It felt awful for the person he was going through. God meant something that appeared and felt bad for a long, long time. Long time, but ultimately it produced good. The glorious product was worth the miserable and underline capital M miserable process. How does that make you feel? It's okay if you have some not so pleasant emotions. I've been in the appearing bad and feeling bad and miserable process before and my emotions were not so pleasant. Maybe you're in the miserable, appearing bad, feeling bad process right now, and if your emotions are not so pleasant, I understand, and even more so, God understands. I mean, there's part of us that we don't know how we feel about that kind of God. And let's be honest, we love a God who can redeem, but we sometimes worry about a God who is sovereign, so sovereign that Genesis fifty twenty might be true. Why is that? And I think, we, I think it's right that we wrestle with this. Why is it that the very thing that should give us the utmost comfort and confidence, a God who is completely in control, why is that a point of contention and confusion for so many of us? And I'll tell you why. Because the enemy knows that he can trip us up in this area and he does it with all of us. He knows and he works hard to get us to back away from the blessing that is available in this verse, in this truth, that comes from embracing a God who doesn't simply allow things to happen, but who causes things to happen. The enemy knows that if he can get us to be a little afraid of this reality, we back away from it, and we miss a tremendous blessing that only comes from living in this place. The things that may initially cause us to question God's good, but will ultimately, and I mean ultimately, cause us to see and experience his best. And yes, there may be a gap in between. So I want to do a quick backstory of this verse so we'll fully appreciate where it comes from and who it comes from. Your mind may not be changed, and I don't expect to be able to convince everybody. I don't know if I'm completely convinced, to be honest with you, (laughs) but you will be left, I think, will be left with an undeniable impression that there has at least been one man in history who lived his life from a place of absolute confidence that God was with him, that God was intending and meaning everything, and that's so hard to say, everything. I mean, who would live from this kind of place? What sort of person would believe this? We're going to be introduced to one person that did. And he might be the only person in history that's ever lived from this place. But his story is so remarkable, we've got to pay attention to it. Because if he has a secret that we need, we can't ignore it. Of course, this verse came from the mouth of Joseph. We know him as the prince of Egypt in this point in time. But he wore a lot of different hats, a lot of different coats as well uh, before he arrived at this place. Now, we know the story. Joseph was the youngest of a family of Jacob, um, the favorite son of the family, in fact, of the tribe of Jacob. Jacob had recently been anointed as Israel. This tribe, believe it or not, was the only one in the world, the only group of people in the world that believed in the one true God. God had been rejected and lost in the shuffle of the world's expansion and as civilization dispersed around the world. So he came to, him, came to Abraham and revealed himself, And of course, Isaac and Jacob came after him. And it was through this one tribe that God was going to reintroduce himself to the whole world. Y'all know the story. Jacob was where the ball got rolling with God's plan to reach the whole world. God was going to turn Jacob and his fledgling tribe into a nation. And that nation would be a beacon of light. The world needed to be saved and restored from sin. The answer would come through this little tribe of Jacob. So at the time, Jacob has 11 sons. All of them wanted to be the next in line for the blessing that God was pouring out on the family. All of them wanted to lead this soon-to-be nation. So Jacob had already picked the one he was going to bless, that he was hoping God would bless above the others. Jacob had a favorite son through a favorite wife. His name was Joseph. And that meant that the other 10 hated and were very, very jealous of Joseph, as you would expect. So the story goes, Joseph is sort of his dad's right-hand man. He makes twice as much money and does half as much work. He goes and spies on his brothers and reports how they don't measure up to their father's standards. And he is kind of the tattletale in the family. And he just kind of lives in this place of spoiledness. And he kind of revels in it. And they are so angry at him for it. As time goes on, they have had enough of it. So Joseph ends up getting jumped one day when they're out taking care of livestock. And they throw him into a dry well. Well. They're going to kill him, but then they see a chance to make some money, so they sell him to some slave traders, and the last they know and the last they see of their baby brother, he's carted off to Egypt. So at 17 years old, Joseph is betrayed, sold into slavery, and taken to Egypt. The favored son becomes the forgotten son. And it's that tension that the story begins from. Can you imagine Can you imagine what was running through Joseph's mind when all this unfolded? Unbeknownst to him, his brothers lie and tell his father he was mauled by an animal. They show his coat of many colors. You know, they put blood all over it from a goat. His father accepts that he's dead and life moves on as if he never existed. And all the while, he still existed as a slave in a godless empire. Can you imagine what was going through this 17-year-old boy's mind who had been promised so many great things believed in a God who was going to bless him and the nation he was a part of could you imagine what he was going through when he was betrayed sold and taken to Egypt not knowing what was going to happen next a land where nobody spoke his language where no one worshiped his God can you imagine what was going through him I think the meta-narrative we're supposed to pick up on in this story is what it means to be favored by God is this what favored looks like? Uh, is, is all this God's chosen people and blessed and highly favored talk just a bunch of feel-good but ultimately empty rhetoric? Because here's Joseph sold into slavery. There's no justice. There's no redemption. It, it, the ones that are responsible for selling him into slavery, they actually prosper in the immediate future. They get by with it. So, so what do we do with this story? When we drop in to whatever B.C., you know, and and we start seeing this story play out in real time, and we see Joseph going to prison or Joseph going to slavery and his brother's living on and his father moving on, what do we do with this? How do we wrestle with this reality that this happened to somebody that was supposed to be the greatest person alive? Favored and loved by God and his father. You know, what's humbling is what Joseph did with it. Not only at the end of the story, but during the story, before he knew what was going to happen next. So I want you to flip back with me to Genesis 39, where Joseph's story begins as he is restarting his life in Egypt. I want to walk you through a little bit of Joseph's story, and I want to just, you know, I don't know, sometimes I read the Bible and I'm just thinking, well, this guy's like me because they do awful things and dumb things and foolish things and sinful things. But when I read Joseph's story, I, I, I I just am completely humbled and overwhelmed because nobody's like this. But Joseph clearly was. And I want you to just hear some of the things the Bible tells us about Joseph. So 39 verse 1 says, Joseph was taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had bought him or taken him down there from his brothers. And then verse 2, I mean, it's just kind of hard to even read. The Lord was with Joseph. I mean, is that supposed to make us feel better? The Lord was with Joseph? I mean, couldn't the Lord have been with Joseph when he was checking on his brothers? I mean, couldn't the Lord have been with Joseph and put his brothers in prison? Or couldn't the Lord have been with Joseph and protected him from even going out to check on his brothers? Couldn't the Lord have been with Joseph and kept him from this place? I don't know. Maybe that's going through your mind, but I have to think it had to go through his mind at some point. But here's what the story tells us. Joseph was a successful man. I mean, who who doesn't want to be a successful slave? He was successful. He was in the house of the the master of the the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him, and he made him overseer over his house, and all that he had he put under his authority. What we gather from Joseph's work ethic and integrity is that he believed that God was with him and he lived like God was with him. Now, how do we know this? Joseph didn't live like he had been abandoned or forsaken. He lived like someone who was favored and loved by God. He didn't throw in the towel. He didn't carelessly go about and live however he wanted. Point in case, when Potiphar's wife tries to convince Joseph to have an affair with her, Again, think about the context in verse 4. Potiphar had favor for Joseph. What good had favor done for Joseph before? It, ended, it made him a slave. I mean, he didn't protect him from going down to Egypt. So here comes the enemy tempting him not to fall for favor and not to respond with integrity. What was the use, Joseph? You've seen this movie before. It gets you nowhere. Quit trying to be someone who worries about doing the right thing and doing the honest thing and just live a little bit. You deserve it. Well, verse number eight tells us that Joseph did not fall for that. He refused her offer and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he's committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Isn't that incredible? You know what this says about Joseph's overall faith, his overall impression of God, who clearly could have stopped him from being in this myth to begin with? I mean, there were no Ten Commandments. Now, we know that they had a right and wrong, but there was no Bible for Joseph to say, I can't do this, this is wrong. Joseph had the presence of God so powerfully in his life, he could not do something that would be offensive to god that would break that fellowship he had with god that you and i would think joseph you're already in a bad situation why did god let you get there he doesn't he doesn't go there and it tells us that joseph trusted that god hadn't messed up when evil befell him god hadn't taken that day off and this is so incredible joseph believed that it was all part of god's plan and again, this is not at the end of the story. This is in the middle of the story. This is in the worst part of the story. Joseph didn't think, well, God just accidentally brought me down here or God was just somehow taken aback and he wasn't in charge that day and the devil did this and now I'm stuck here and I hope God brings me out of this. No, Joseph believed, and you might not would have believed this. I probably wouldn't have. But Joseph believed that God sent him to Egypt and made him a slave to Potiphar, to Potiphar. He believed that. Now, you might think that's insane, but he lived life like that was true. And as God's plan kept rolling along, Joseph took an even lower demotion with the next move. He's put in prison because Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph of assault. Potiphar takes her side and has Joseph arrested and put in prison. The very man that he had once been favored by, again, this time being favored, results in him being framed. At this point in the story, I mean, it just kind of makes you laugh when you read stuff like this. Verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph. I mean, come on. I mean, if God was with Joseph, why did that woman do what she did? And why did she lie? And why did Potiphar believe him? Believe her. I mean, if God was with Joseph, why would he let this happen to Joseph? I mean, that's what normal people think, isn't it? It's what I think. That's what maybe you've thought before. And you can insert your own story into there. But here again, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy. And he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. I mean, isn't that everybody's dream? That the, fa- the prison warden favors you. Well, you're the best prisoner I've got. I mean, isn't that everybody's prayer for the new year? I mean, we want to get where he's at. Of course not. And it says, the keeper of the prison committed Joseph's hand to all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him. Whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. I mean, come on, Joseph, just walk out of jail one day if you're that powerful. But he never does. He never does. If the Lord showing steadfast love results in being put in prison and the shift manager you know, putting you in charge of the prison. I don't know how much I really want that. I don't know. I mean, I definitely don't want to see the opposite if that's the case. And here again, Joseph finds favor and we know how this will end at this point, don't we? Every time somebody favors him, it goes bad and they don't even take care of him. So a situation arises. Pharaoh's administrators are put into prison. Joseph has a dream that one of them, the cupbearer, is going to be restored to his old job and forgiven. So Joseph tells the man that, and this is the only point in the story where we start to see Joseph crack a little bit. Nobody, Joseph doesn't have to do this, but he goes to the cupbearer and gives the cupbearer some good news. If you look down at chapter 40 verse 13, Joseph goes to the cupbearer and says, hey buddy, I've seen a vision. This is about to happen in your life. Now within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your place and, will put cu- and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to the former manner when you were his butler. And, and here's Joseph kind of showing us that his heart was not completely well or he wasn't completely happy and why, how, how could he be? Remember me when it is well with you and please show kindness to me. Make mention of me to Pharaoh and get me out of this place. And I love this. This is the only time we see Joseph actually look like a regular person. And he still does it with a lot more integrity and decency than we would. He could have said, hey, I'm not going to tell you if you don't promise me you're going to do this. And if you don't do this, I'm gonna, you know, I'll figure out some way to pay you back. He just says, hey, would you please remember me when you get out of here? Because I don't want to stay in this prison forever. And, and listen to verse 15. And this is the way he tells this story. For indeed, I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews, and I have done nothing here that they should put me in prison. I mean, Joseph doesn't even tell the whole story, which if he would have told the whole story, I mean, everybody would have been crying and feeling bad for him, right? I mean, nobody's innocent but you, Joseph. He just says, hey, I don't have all day to tell you, but I, I, don't, I'm, I didn't really do anything to get here. And in fact, all I've ever done is try to do the right thing, and all the right things ever done for me is bring me places like this. So you don't have to you know, do this, but I hope you will. (laughs) Joseph finds favor with another person, but once again, once again he is forgotten. Scripture goes on down in verse 23 and says, the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Obviously that's in the story to send the message, isn't it? I mean, we could have just, we didn't have to have that detail. But God wants us to know, to add insult to injury, the butler forgot he had ever met Joseph. That's almost what we expect at this point, isn't it? So for 13 years, he's in slavery and in prison. Highly favored, was mostly forgotten. Now, the story is finally going to take a turn for the better. After 13 years, mind you, of injustice. The cupbearer notices Pharaoh in distress one day, having some bad dreams. Joseph is summoned because, hey, I know a guy that can interpret dreams, and it always ends well when this guy tells you what's going on. And again, we witness something that is otherworldly about Joseph in this exchange. When he finally gets his big break, again, over in chapter 41, verse 14, I encourage you to read this whole story because it's incredible. But chapter 41, verse 14, Pharaoh sent... And called for Joseph, and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon. I mean, come on, you can't make this up. Out of the dungeon, he shaved, changed his clothing, and came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there's no one who can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that you can understand this dream and interpret it. Joseph, I've been told you're the only person in the world with the ability and the knowledge to give me, the most powerful man alive, what I want. And look at how Joseph responds. It is not in me. I'm sorry, Pharaoh, but you don't—you got the wrong guy. I, I don't have any special ability. I don't have any special I mean, come on, Joseph. You literally were rotting in prison for a decade, and you finally get your big break, and you take the stand, and you tell the guy that thinks he's God and can give you whatever you want that you can't give it to him? Oh, but but Joseph doesn't stop there. God will give Pharaoh the answer, as in, you think you're God. I'm the only person in the country that knows the real God because he's with me. I know that doesn't make a lot of sense because I've been in prison and been in slavery, but I believe it, and it's real. He's with me, and he can help you. Come on. I mean, Joseph, you're telling the guy who would kill, you, would kill someone for saying they worship somebody besides him, you're telling him not only you can't help him, but God can? And that God told you instead of him? I mean, who would. What? And here's the even bigger part of this that just blows my mind. The God who watched your brothers betray and sell you, who watched Potiphar accuse and frame you, who watched you be forgotten and took advantage of in prison, that God? I mean, Pharaoh didn't know all this, but I mean, I'm thinking I would have chimed in. That God? That God who hasn't done a thing for you can answer the world's problems? I mean, come on, Joseph, you're, what, are you, what are you pulling on us? And Joseph, again, it's just incredible. Joseph would say, yes, that God, but, but he didn't watch me go through all that. He has been with me through it all. Come again, with you? With you in the pit? With you in the slave trader wagon? With you when you were accused of rape? With you when you were forgotten in prison? I mean, come on! Is that what you call with you? After Joseph tells Pharaoh that he can't help but God can, he then goes on, interprets the dreams, and gives Pharaoh a plan to save the country and the world. After Pharaoh listens to him and understands the story of this boy that stands before him, listen to Pharaoh's response down in verse 38. Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? Pharaoh's first response isn't, This guy's smart. It's that of all the people I have ever met, if there's somebody that has God's presence in them, it's this guy. Isn't that incredible? And and the beauty of the story wasn't that Joseph finally rose to power. It's in Joseph's heart and mind, he had never lost power. See, we make this story all about, oh, Joseph became king and it all was better now. He lost all of his worries and all of his troubles. He got powerful and rich and successful. That's not the point of the story. Joseph didn't think in this chapter, I finally made it. No, he never felt like he lost anything. He didn't think, wow, this is what it's all been about. Because to Joseph, he had never lost. God was always with him. And that might not be the fairy tale you want to hear, but that's the truth that we need to hear. You know, this story is so important in understanding Genesis 50 and really the whole Bible. We love to sing about it and talk about it, but we don't spend enough time marveling at the road that Joseph took to get there when he could finally say 30 years later, this was all about God's plan resulting in victory, but he believed that the entire time. At any point in the story, if we were to drop in, there isn't victory to be found or felt anywhere. Not when he's thrown in the pit, not when he's sold into slavery, not when he's accused of harassment, not when he's forgotten in prison, not when he somehow becomes the king of the world and then a seven-year pandemic and plague comes on the country and it's all Joseph's problem to fix. Oh, by the way, he had a new name, a new identity. He said goodbye to his old identity and his old name and his old, his old customs to do all this. He also was confronted by his brothers after all this time, overwhelmed with emotion. I mean, it doesn't seem like it was an easy road or a good road at any point for Joseph. Yet somehow, someway through it all, at the end of it all, with his brothers still making it all about them, worried if he would turn against them, (laughs) Joseph believed this was all about God working things for his ultimate and long-term good. And even in the bad, Joseph knew that God was still with him i got to ask you, do we have that kind of faith? Can we be honest and just say we don't? <laughs> Maybe you do, but I don't. As to be able to say that once we come out of a difficult season, to look back and interpret everything as if it was worth it, can we say that? More importantly, do we have that kind of faith to be able to believe that Genesis 50-20 is true in a difficult season? or during it, before it ever works out? And now to be clear, I'm not asking you, is your faith big enough? I'm asking you, is your God big enough? As in, do you understand that God is sovereign and do you trust Him with every decision that He makes? Is your faith brave enough to trust Him even when you're not happy with His decisions? Brave enough to endure whatever it takes, whatever God wills to arrive at a place of victory. You see... Here's why I thought this was the perfect conversation to begin this new year with. With 2020 in our rearview mirror, finally. If we go back a year, 2020 began like every year with people making resolutions. I think the pandemic and chaos gave us an out on those. So I don't know what you resolved to do last year, but we probably didn't do it. And you're probably, you're forgiven for that because, hey, we had a rough time. But there's a new trend every year. And you might not be into this, but there's a new trend in our world. That we don't just make New Year's resolutions anymore. We make New Year's declarations. We make proclamations as not this is what I'm going to work on, but this is how it's going to be. And I'm just going to believe it into reality. People do this in every arena of life. Religious leaders obviously do it, but politicians do it, and secular leaders do it. And it usually works like this. People that are already on top, and they're already, you know, have more money than us and already more powerful than us, they make these outlandishly predictable things about how predictions, about how great things are going to be, and everything, and everyone else kind of falls in line, and we think, well, I want that to be true, too. I'm going to say that, too. But the people that are saying these things, they already have it way better than us. Than me, at least. They're wealthier, they're prettier, they're more successful. But they convince people like me to join in. Now, usually what happens is I spend the year hoping that I become like them, but I never do. In secular culture, they say, well, I guess you weren't as lucky as me. But in religious circles, when this thing happens, they smile at us and say, well, I guess you didn't have as much faith as me. And then I think, well, I guess. I guess I just didn't have enough faith. I guess it's all my fault. That I didn't will this better reality into existence. And there are all sorts of things that stem from this, and I'm not trying to knock any particular movement, but this is just the stuff that's out there. Now, the reason I bring this up is because last year these sorts of New Year's declarations were taken to an extreme. And in hindsight, as I've studied some of them over the last month, what happened in the, in the process of time last year shouldn't have been too surprising. It was bound to happen as this sort of thing uh, you know, just cannot be sustained. You see, last year, all the pretty, famous, wealthy people and holy people were talking about how 2020 was going to be the greatest year ever. And if you didn't believe it and you didn't get on board with it, you are the problem because we were just going to, as a people, will this into existence. I mean, we couldn't help ourselves. We drank all the Kool-Aid and it was just, we embarrassed ourselves. with. And I think, you know, our generation, we couldn't do this for 2000 because we were afraid the world was going to end and people were talking about computers crashing. So finally, 2020 was like the first year people could really go crazy with predictions and proclamations and declarations because the, all because the year just sounded fun. I don't know. Something about vision and all that stuff. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't cast visions and set goals. I'm just saying that last year, all the jet setters and trend setters were saying, this is the year to end all years. And boy, were they right. Just not the way they thought they would be. And because this trend has made its way into religious circles and church circles, there were no shortage of 2020 visions. And again, a plenty were done in the right spirit. But a lot of them were just classic examples of wishing Now, I'm being facetious, but isn't it true that we Christians sort of joined in on this movement of just kind of declaring what we want things to be like and getting mad when it doesn't happen or disappointed? You see, instead of praying for God's will to be done and rejoicing in whatever he brings, we started telling God how it should be done. And we've done this enough years now that we kind of think this is how it's supposed to be. That we just say, God, this is how it's going to be. Name it, claim it, and I'm big, and I'm bold, and I'm strong in my faith, and I'm just going to will this into existence. And really, that's not a sign of faith. That's a sign of no faith. And instead of humbling before God, we stand up to him in pride. Instead of praying, not my will, but thy will, we say my way or the highway. And again, not literally, but in our posture. And again, the enemy takes the microphones from so many church movements and he makes this mess sound appealing and holy. But I think 2020 was a reckoning of sorts for this sort of ideology. This sort of why ask for God's will when you can just demand it. And in classical biblical fashion, pride went before the fall, didn't it? Because what happens to all of our proclamations and declarations about nine months ago, they all flushed down the drain that was 2020, didn't they? I mean, if everything people said about last year was going to be true, then we would have a highlight reel of all those things, but we don't. And this sort of posture that has become contagious in every year's new beginning is not Christianity at all, but it's actually detrimental to Christianity. And you know what I noticed? Last year when everything went off rails... We blame the devil. We blame the virus. We blame the government. We blame the media. We blame the government again. And eventually we blamed everybody for making a mess out of our perfect planned out year. And You might not agree with this more than you didn't agree with the other stuff that I said. What if, what if we can sum up 2020 in a very simple way? What if 2020 was God's I don't know. I'm asking a question. Should have been a question mark there. What if it was just God's will? Now, God's will can be understood in two ways. He has a moral will. He doesn't will anybody to sin and and, and disobey him, but God has a sovereign will. The sovereign will of God says his purpose and plans are never frustrated. He is always in control, and it's so crucial that we get this right. And it's imperative that preachers like me teach this and teach it in the right way. If our approach to a new year or a new season is this is how it's going to happen, and if it doesn't happen, something's wrong with me, something's wrong with you, or something's wrong with God, you know what's at risk? Me, you, and our faith in God. 2020 proved that we don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know. And last year, when all the rich and powerful and self-righteous and holy people saw all this coming, they went and hid for a few months because they couldn't declare it to go away. It became apparent that the words of Jesus were fulfilled right in front of our eyes. That he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and unjust. That we shouldn't try to figure it all out. Sometimes God just has a plan. Some days it's sunny, some days it's stormy. I think it's probably true that a lot of people's faith took a hit last year, but not because God let us down, but because religion let us down. The game we often play about professing to trust God, but actually we put our faith in everything but Him. But the good news is God is still God, and we have a chance to put our faith in Him and not sacrifice our joy and peace on the altar of this world this year. You see, we're at a crossroads as we were last year. As we look back at our posture a year ago and see what 2020 did to it, chewing it up, spitting it out, and mopping the floor with our hopes and our dreams and our wishes. We start a new year confronted with, are we going to make the same mistake again, or are we going to take a different approach? Are we going to follow the example of Joseph and trust in God's sovereign plan and live with confidence that he is with us no matter what? Finding victory in his assuring presence. Trusting patiently, patiently in his sovereign plan. 2020 was so alluring because of the association with vision and sight and clarity. But I think 2021 offers us an equally provocative idea that could be understood as in the aftermath of a year like we just had. You see, 2021, when measured up to most of our expectations... It brought us the opposite of what we expected, and it might have won. But God and his plan are still undefeated if we trust him with what has come and what still is to come. And here's the thing, all the best year ever, my year, our year stuff, all those things may still very well be true if we understand how God actually blesses us in spite of what we might be facing even if it doesn't feel like it, because God's goodness and his blessings aren't measured the way this world teaches us to measure success. For a lot of us, we surrendered to the world's standards. We've quit looking for good in any given day. Some of us, we get out of bed defeated because something went wrong a long time ago. Some of us, it doesn't take much for a day to go south, does it? And when the day goes south, guess what? You go south too. Your attitude, your focus, your testimony, everything. Everything. And there's part of you that wants to roll your eyes and laugh at this idea that God is at work when we feel our worst, when we're going through the worst, God is still at work. But what if He is? What if Genesis 50 verse 20 is true? You meant this for evil, but God meant it and caused it and orchestrated it to the very minute minute detail. He had the slave trader walking up the road when they threw him in the pit. He planned it all, and I know that's painful in a lot of ways. But when we see the full story, we understand it, don't we? It's my prayer that we can resolve together to seek God's will and accept God's will as the best possible path, and that we would trust Him and not put off moving toward God. And moving forward because we aren't sure, but keep moving forward because we are certain that God is with us and we are living out His plans. This is not passive. It requires devotion and prayer and concentration and study like Joseph exhibited in temptation when these times of sin and times of success, when tempted to turn and trust in any other, we must renew our trust in our sovereign God. And that's what we need to do this year more than anything. If we do this, we will be positioned for a better year Make, with this perspective, no matter what 2020 may have broken, God can make it blessed. No matter what it left bitter, God can make it better. He led us through 2020. He can lead us through 2021. The question is, will we trust him? Will we not only accept his will, but participate in his will and walk with confidence that we are right where we need to be? Even when everybody else might disagree. That's the invitation. I don't expect this to be easy for any of us. I don't think it was easy for Joseph. But at some point in his life, he made a decision. I'm going to trust in the sovereign God over creation and over my life. Because what the enemy meant for evil, God had his hands on and meant it for good. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for bringing this message before us. Thank you for confronting us. And God, I'm not going to lie, this is not easy. There are people that are wrestling right now with the reality that you might have meant something in their life that's been very painful. Something that in the moment brings a lot of emotion and a lot of hurt and a lot of questions. And right now, they can't really understand how you might have meant that, for, meant that for good. So maybe their first response to this is, God, I don't know how I can accept this because I'm in a lot of pain right now emotionally, maybe physically. I have a lot of questions, but maybe they're willing to take that first step and say, but God, as I'm in this valley, doubting you is not helping. And I know that trusting you is the only way I'm going to figure out what's going on. Maybe the rest of us, Lord, are at the end of a, uh, at the end, uh, of a storm, and they, see you, they are now seeing what you've done. God, well, for, for whatever reason, whatever place, everybody here today has a choice to make. Will we trust that God is sovereign, even when it doesn't feel like he is? God, would you heal our hearts? Would you help our spirits? Would you raise us up with faith today? That we might be an example to a world that needs this direction more than anything. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.